Welcome, everyone, to Never Delegate Understanding. Today, we have Sarah Gari. It's such my great pleasure to have her here. And let me tell you something about her. When Sarah was 13 years old, Sarah noticed some movement difficulties, but it wasn't until 20 years later uh, that she was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, a neurologic condition that's mostly known for its uh, tremor and an effect on people's quality of life, the movement, uh, and so forth. And as an engineer by training, Sarah decided to combine her professional knowledge with her patient experience to improve her health. In 2010, she did a master's in health informatics, and she's now uh, completing a PhD in self-care for Parkinson's disease. While Sarah sees her neurologist only one hour out of the year, the rest of the time she monitors her medications and symptoms using apps on her phone in pen and paper. She herself has created two symptom tracking apps that other patients can use too. She's a leader in the Medicine X movement and sits on the patient advisory panel at the British Medical Journal, BMJ, and this year, Focus Magazine, the Swedish sort of time magazine, named her Sweet of the Year in Medicine. Imagine that. I mean, the, what a journey. It seems like it was only yesterday that I, I, was, I decided to take this path. And it's, it, so much has happened since, not, not least meeting you and all, all, the, all the other amazing people all around the world. Well, so let's just go back a minute, uh, maybe take the listeners back to the moment that you entered this healthcare World. I mean, you were even though you had noticed that at thirteen. I mean, you're living your life. You're you're an engineer. I mean, all all the time before you get this diagnosis, uh, you're not really aware of this healthcare world, right? No, of course not. I was the first time I saw a neurologist. I was sixteen years old, and and I I was sitting in the waiting room and and feeling very very out of place. Uh, I was there with all the old people literally and, and, and very very ill people and I, I was just wanting to go back to school and, and <laughs> continue with my with my classes yeah. so I felt very out of place and to be honest it didn't really improve by the neurologist after having examined me with the usual neurological tests the people have been through them know them they push you around they po- poke you they point at you they, they make you follow their their, their finger or their pen with your eyes, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't know what they meant, and I didn't know what was expected of me other than to do what he said. And after these um, tests, he, he told me that nothing was wrong with me, that what I was experiencing was purely psychosomatic. Mm. Wow. So that made me feel even more out of place and, and misunderstood and, and frankly, mis, mistrusted. Mm. And then... Were you repetitively seen through that period? Because like, you know, said it was in your early 30s that you're ultimately diagnosed. How did that go? Well, yeah, I, I saw a neurologist. I saw the same neurologist once more uh, when I was about 18, 19. And my my symptoms had, had worsened. Uh, and at that point... Interestingly enough, at the first visit, I didn't know this until way, way, way later. But he wrote in, 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 the, in the healthcare record, potentially a, a hereditary form of dystonia, hmm. which was the diagnosis he gave me then when I was 18 or 19 and came to him the second time. But that wasn't what he told me. That's, I found that out 
when I asked for for a transcript of my healthcare record when I was in my 30s. Because mm, it wasn't wouldn't have been usual to share that with you at that time, for sure. No, and I wouldn't have I wouldn't have come up with the idea of, of asking. I mean, it was it wasn't really what you did as a patient. But what did he tell you that you had at that time? Well, the first time he said nothing, yeah. uh, psychosomatic, and the second time he actually said that maybe this is a hereditary form of dystonia. So the, three he, years later, two, two, three years later, he said, he told me that, yes. Oh, so he did say it to you. But what, that, <laughs> didn't, did, that must did. not have had any meaning to you anyway. Those words sound very jargony to someone who's not in medicine. It meant literally nothing, but uh, being a nerd as I've always been and, and, and really being very, very comfortable around books and in, in libraries, I did what you did back then. I went to the library, sort of that, that, that time's worldwide web, right? So th- this is interesting to me because what was it do you think, you just think you're predisposed like that or what was it that made you want to do that? <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I think I was, I was like, an, I think I was an early adopter. I, I used sort of the methods of the internet before internet even existed. And I've always been a bookworm uh, from very, very young age. So I, I've always gone to books to find things. And I, I remember literally flicking through the, the catalogs at the library. You know, these, these boxes, they have these drawers where, yeah. where they have cards yeah, yeah. stacked on yeah. it. So, which is basically a search engine in, in its infancy. Right. Yeah. The card catalogs. So, uh, exactly. And I, I was flicking through them. I learned these, these shelf codes and, and I learned to find my way around the medical books in, in, our, in our public library where I, was, where I grew up. So, I, I guess it's a predisposition, but I also think it's, it's to do with being inherently curious. And then, so, so when did you finally get the diagnosis? I mean, what, what was... How did that happen? Uh, yeah, that's another interesting story. So I, I had I had just become a mother. Our baby was two or three, four months old, and when 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 the baby was when two months old, maybe I I was I was at a meeting where uh, one of the neurologists of Stockholm uh, gave gave a presentation on the disease on, on the group of diseases I thought I had, which was dystonias. And I wanted, I didn't want to take up everybody else's time at the meeting to ask about my particular form of dystonia, which was then a subgroup of this group. So I, I, I talked to him very briefly and said, and he said, well, make an appointment to come see me. So I did. And that, that came a few months later. And when I came to him, I didn't expect to be examined, but he, he put me through those, those tests the regular neurological neurological test again, and and I I didn't I mean I, I was a, I was a very well let's say uh, docile patient back then, and, and so I did what he said. I didn't ask why. I I, I didn't question him, uh, and then he just turned to me and said, "Well, you don't have dystonia. You have Parkinson's disease." Hmm. And then and then he literally said, "Have a nice day." Oh my gosh. And and I can tell you one thing, I did not. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, you must not yeah. have. Been, did you even know what Parkinson's disease was at that moment? I did. I I, I did. Uh, it was. I I I had the same association as most people have with a with a man in his eighties stumbling mm. and, and trembling. And I did neither of those things, so mm. it didn't really fit my picture of Parkinson's disease. 
But since then, of course, I've learned that that's that's a misunderstanding. That's a misconception of Parkinson's disease. But but of course, I I, I didn't know that then. Let me just uh, highlight one thing about that story you just told me. You went to a medical meeting. No, it was it was a patient meeting actually. Uh, uh, the the original one when they were talking about dystonias. It was. Yeah, it was the patient patient association for for dystonia. Oh, interesting. So, so yeah, because I I I had joined that that association. We have a a very strong uh, field of patient organizations in Sweden. I have have had for a long time. So that's yeah. I think in, there's great in, power. In there's great power in that people coming together and and sort of helping each other and giving each other support. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, no. So I had joined the board of that association oh, wow. a year or two so so earlier. But then I, when I But then they had to kick you I off because you weren't you didn't have yeah, this. Yeah. <laughs> it was you couldn't be a member of that club anymore, I guess. No, I changed my club. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. changed my changed my affiliation. So and of course I'm just making light of a serious situation. So you you just but, but of course I, I I'm trying to think about that moment where you're you're hearing that. So that, then, what happened? I mean, like you said, you were you you yourself said I was a docile patient at that time. What what was your yeah. own personal journey then that that took you from that moment when he said that to you, which must have pushed you back on your heels? I mean, it, it's a stunning revelation uh, that you have that. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, so I've been thinking a lot about this over the years. Uh, Especially since I joined, since I've changed my career from from being in environmental engineering and, and environmental risk assessment, which was my previous career. But so I I was lucky enough that that my second diagnosis actually coincided with it with the start of the with the with the with the boom of the internet. So this happened in two thousand three. I, I got my first email address in 1990, and I think that I was then a student at the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm. So I was pretty pretty early on, like some sort of using the internet. And, and I, I um, this time around, this diagnosis, I didn't go to the library. I went to the internet, uh, and that's a whole different kind of worms, right? Yeah. But. As, uh, also, at the same time, of course, I had this baby I had to take care of, and so I, 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 I usually describe it like it felt like I fell down into a black hole. Mm. But because of the baby, uh, I, I couldn't stay there, so I didn't. So I sort of dug myself up there and started wow. uh, taking taking action and, and starting. What I do when I when I stumble across when I have a problem or, or sort of something happens, I, I collect knowledge. I, I, I learn about sort of, I get information so that I, that I can decide and, and work further. So that's what I did. I went to the internet and surfed, surfed through everything. So, so I, I, I literally printed page after page after page of, of, of search, search hits and, and, and sort of flicked through them and found the information. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was it was a busy time, but it, it it's it was the start of my my empowerment, I guess, in a way. And and how did you get to the point where you started managing your own symptoms? I mean, there's this part about educating yourself, but then you you're still within the conventional approach of going to the doctor, deferring to what you know is being suggested to you, and, and you sort of emerged yeah. as someone who was going to say that look, these this is my body, my life. I I don't think anyone can know how I feel as well as I do. And managing medications is, is something to, to, 
you know, that you needed to invest in. How did that happen? Yeah, so between the first neurologist, the first diagnosis and the second one, I had seen a, 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 another, a third neurologist. And, and that, that neurologist I'm, I'm still seeing, we, 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 I've been his patient for over 25 years now. Uh, so I, when I had, had gotten this diagnosis from this, this second guy in the story, he, I, I went back to my, my really my, my, my own neurologist who was this one that I see, I was, I'm still seeing. And he, he, was, he was very sort of, um, he, he took it well, I think. I mean, it was sort of a... a well, how did, you even, think, how did you even present the idea that, hey, you know, I think I might play a bigger role? No, well, yeah, that, that didn't come up like that. It was more like being an engineer, I like to, to, to see, I like to measure things. I like numbers. I like, I like, I like Excel sheets. I'm, I'm kind <laughs> of nerdy that way. So, uh, so I, I, what happened first actually was I, I, someone told me about patients like me. And I, I registered to be a member, and, and they had this doctor visit sheet that you could print the PDF. You, you, you entered your score, and, and it printed a PDF with, with your history that you could to take to your doctor in, in a nice format. And I, I did that and took it to him, and, and he, he found it interesting. We had a, we had a, a discussion on a, new, on a new high level compared to, to meetings before then. So I sort of thought, oh, this was interesting. Something ha- I, not as conscious as that, but I sort of subconsciously registered and thought, huh, this was interesting. So the next thing I did was I found that patients like me was was a bit too too limited for me because I wanted to do more 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 personal stuff for myself. So since since I take a lot of medication for my Parkinson's disease. And, and I take them several times to, throughout the day in different combinations. And I wanted to understand better because I sort of had the feeling that the, the effect of them varied o- over the course of the day. So I, I wanted to try and understand better how, how if and if, if it did, then how it varied. So I, I attended a doctoral dissertation in December of 2011 that had used a a finger tapping test to to as a proxy for medication effect in Parkinson's disease. So I they he had used it for for evaluating or optimizing uh, advanced treatment for Parkinson's disease in the clinical clinical setting. But then I figured, well, I could try that. Uh, so and I, I had recently got, uh, gotten my first iPhone. Uh, so I, I found a free app for, for finger tapping that I downloaded, and I, and I just started tapping with my right hand and my left hand several times a day. And there was a pattern emerging there that, that, that I could use to, to see uh, actually a dip in function around lunch. Wow. So, so that could be then. So I realized that hmm, maybe I need to tweak my medication timings a bit. <laughs> So I did, and and I'm very happy to say that 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 test the 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 intervention. It's not an intervention; it's more of an evaluation that I did. I was actually able to publish it in a scientific uh, journal last year. So because I'm also doing some research, I'm trying to to, as you said, complete the doctorate in this as well. That, that's. 
That's amazing. Let me, there are a couple things here that, by the way, just to, from what I've heard from you that just trigger things in my thinking. One is I, I've often thought about the need to flip the classroom. You know, people talk about flipping the classroom now in, in you know, high school, college, sure, and places sure, where, sure, yeah. you, you know, you're, you're, you're coming to the classroom with something. You've already watched something or done something. But for me, flipping the classroom in a doctor's visit is you've collected information so that the doctor's visit doesn't start the, – the doctor's visit's not dedicated to acquiring information from you. You've already produced information about what your, what your experience has been. So the, the visit can build on top of data that's been developed and can be looked at. That, that's one thing about – from what you just said. What do you think of that? I think that's a very way, good way of putting it. I never thought of it that way. But and the important thing is, uh, I have another article looking at what other people think about self-tracking for Parkinson's disease. What other, what other, so so and, and someone there said, but you also need to make sure that the doctor can understand what you mean with this data. You yeah. need to make it accessible yeah. to, yep. to, to the doctor because right. otherwise they won't get it. Right. So I, I completely agree. That's a great way of describing it. And then the other thing that's so important of what I've heard is – you know, it's about the information between the clinical visits that actually should inform what the clinical visit's about. Too often, all of it was about the data acquisition at that moment in time, at the moment you were at the clinical encounter, not paying attention to the trajectories and ups and downs, let alone what you're talking about, which is not just the daily or weekly fluctuations, but actually the hourly fluctuations, which can help inform your your regimen and, and to understand your responsiveness. And, and like, in a way, this just shows the power of the person facing the health challenges to discover the the approach, which actually can best help them. Definitely. I, I completely agree. And two things came up in my mind. One thing is I uh, that Parkinson's disease is a very complex disease, and there aren't really any generally agreed measures that, that, that 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 are used over over the medical systems. Uh, I I've used this finger tapping as a proxy for medication effect, but it's not something that that is 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 generally accepted and used by neurologists all over the world, or even Sweden, or even anywhere. I, I think if you have type one diabetes, you have a clear measure, objective measure for your your current state. That's the glucose glucose concentration in your blood as well as your long-term sort of prediction as HbA1c. Uh, but we as, as people with, with brain disorders or, or, or even mental health issues as well, which are very much related, there aren't really any objective measures. And that's, that's a problem because it, it limits what we can do for ourselves and limits our, our communication with healthcare. That's, that's one thing. And the other thing is tracking is really, really, really hard. It takes a lot of time, takes a lot of energy. So I don't track every day. I don't even track every week. Hmm. Because if, if I feel okay, I don't want to track. I just want to get on with life. That's, <laughs> I, I don't want to track my way through life. Right. But I, use, I know that I can use the methods when I need them uh, since I know they work. So it's, been more, it's more of a, a uh, mindset for me these days. But going back to your diabetes example, you know, it does... I mean, we have a great example in medicine where people need to monitor themselves over time yeah. and to administer medication in response to to, to how they're, how they're, you know, what, what what's going on in their life. In this case, what they ate and their exercise and their sleep and 
you know, the circadian rhythms. I mean, all sorts of things go into your metabolism and, and what your glucose yeah. levels are. And then people can monitor and do it. It's so interesting that in other areas, you know, we we haven't that sort of empowerment, which was necessary because people can get yeah. into trouble. They can't be observed all the time by the professional medical community. You know, you've essentially shown how that spreads to to Parkinson's, for example, how that can be understood as an approach. Yeah, but it's really difficult for other people to to to, to take this up in their own lives. I I I have had literally, well, not thousands, but hundreds of people approaching me, wanting me to 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 tell them just just tell them what uh, what to do, and and I that's not something I can do. I, I don't I don't know what's right for everybody to use in terms of their 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 treatment. What I can tell them is how I've worked to to evaluate and to optimize my own treatment. But that takes so much more work than just telling them what to do. So there, there aren't a lot of people who are prepared to put, put to take on that effort. And I understand them. It, they, they don't know what they can gain until they try. And it's really hard work just managing Parkinson's day to day. But is the impediment the tracking or is the impediment the knowing what to do with the information that the tracking produces? <sighs> I think the, the main impediment actually is understanding what what to do with all, all this information and, and actually knowing how to how to it's about the mindset really and also the lack of support from the medical system because I, I'm, I'm a chemical engineer I know my ways around my, my way around sort of chemical compounds and and I can I can even calculate them if I want to in terms of pharmacokinetics and stuff but I mean most people don't have that that knowledge. And and also I, I I'm also lucky to have a supporting neurologist that I know uh, ca- that I can contact if I need to, but, but that's not everybody's situation, unfortunately. But so I, people pe- pe- people don't have the courage to try this for themselves because they don't know what support they have. Well, it's a lot to put them on their their courage. I mean, part, for me, it's about whether we can make such things normative. So, for example, yeah. we, we don't say the same thing in diabetes. Okay, you've got type one diabetes and. It's optional whether you check your glucose and endose yourself. I mean, we, we no, make it because they they die if they don't. Right, exactly. But we make it normative. I mean, we we have the expectation we support them, and we in the medical community have expectations of their empowerment in that way. We, in fact, yeah. we we work hard to teach them how do you dose yourself, how do you monitor yeah. yourself, and and we're constantly reinforcing that. But. I mean, when I hear what you're saying in Parkinson's, it's like somehow we didn't cross the bridge. You know, we weren't able to in this condition. We 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 haven't we don't teach people. We don't you know sort of expect that they're monitoring like this. Nor have we created the tools to make that that easy. I mean, am, am I off track on that? I mean, it sort of seems like no, you're completely on, on track, and, and and I'm I'm increasingly surprised because I, I of course I didn't know that there was so much education be, being happen, happening in type one diabetes because I don't have type one diabetes. I mean, you, as you know, there are children. I mean, many children who that's when they develop the type one diabetes, and we spend a, a lot of time. And I just say, even with children, I mean, we don't say they're children; they can't possibly learn about their condition. We we, we commit to to telling them you've got this is a lifelong thing. You've got to learn. In other words, you have to be somewhat of an expert in diabetes. I mean, we try to say to each person who's got diabetes that there is some expertise that you need. You need to know how to manage this monitor. You need to know what to do with this result. You need to yeah, know exactly. how to interact with your clinicians. And you need to know what, what happens with your glucose level if you if you do this or this and this. Right. Yeah. But in Parkinson's, we just 
we are just handed a bunch of medications and sent on, on our way. And literally, these medications, I, I take for my Parkinson's five different types of medication, prescription medication. And I haven't been taught how to, how to, how, what effects they have in the combinations. I've learned that myself by reading and, and talking to other patients. How, how, many pill, how many times a day do you have to swallow a pill? Six. So, oh, so you take each one once a day? No, uh, seven actually. So no, no, the, uh, seven times in four different combinations. So in the morning, I take a bunch of them. Then I take different combinations throughout the day to keep me going. And then I take one, one to, so, at so night. That, that's a burden also to try to keep all of that straight. It, it's, it's a lot, yeah. And when my, when my now 16-year-old was younger, he, he asked me, if I thought it was, if I didn't think it was a lot of hard work, to, if I didn't think it was a burden to take all this medication, I said, I, I thought for a while, and then I told him, no, I choose not to see it that way. Yeah. Because if I did, if I did, it would take me, it would take so much more energy. I don't think he understood it, but, but it was interesting for me to, to reflect on. I think like the diabetics, it just becomes part of your life. And and then it's... I know, I know what happens if I don't take them. I, I can't move. So, and I don't want that to happen. So but, but let me ask you this. There's a, an infographic that you made, which I know has been translated into many languages and shown at conferences about the patient experience. It, it has something like 8,000, I think, 765 blue dots and one red dot. And it says correct to, yeah. to manage her Parkinson's disease, Sarah Gari spends one hour in neurologic health care and 8,765 hours in self-care per year. Why, why did you do that? And what were you hoping to convey with it? So. As I said, I'm an engineer. I like numbers, and I started thinking uh, what, how much time I spend in healthcare. And so I did it to start with. I did it for myself to to get the visualization of of, of what it looks like. And then, of course, I found it pretty interesting that that eight five eight, eight seven six five. So it's easy to remember if you if you do it that way. Eight, eight seven. Oh six, yeah, five, eight seven six five. Everyone's. Easy to remember. Yeah. So and and I and it's been. I didn't expect it to be as as attractive as it turned out to be to other people, and I've actually realized things that I didn't realize when I when I first made it. But I I've now come to understand that it it's not only that's not only my situation. That's a very common situation for for patients all over the world in all sorts of diseases, and and I don't want to, people to think that I want more red dots in my life. I want the red dot that it's my 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 time with my neurologist to be as 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 useful as possible for for the rest for the whole of, yeah. of my year. Yeah. And I know that if I if I ha- if I can bring more knowledge and, and more understanding and more information to to our our meeting, the meeting will mean will be more more valuable for for me and and for him. I think. You know, one thing that also strikes me about uh, this, I just wonder what you think about is so we've talked about. You know all this information, but it's hard to know exactly sometimes what to do with it. You've learned for yourself how to how to manage it, but it seems like if we could get large numbers of people facing you know Parkinson's and and be able to collect the data from from the eight thousand seven hundred sixty five hours and, and and the functional data. I mean, in this era of AI and and predictive analytics, I mean, we, we should be able to to make suggestions based on the experience of people in the past. I mean, are you working on that or do you, are you aware of that? Because it just seems like this abundance of data often is, is not accessible to anyone. It's sequestered in the, with the person. And, yeah. and yet we need to find ways to bring it all together so that we can learn from it. 
So I've, I've, I've changed my view in this over the years, actually. I used to think that if I can only give people an app for them to find out what, how they need to take the medication for themselves, they will be empowered to do it and everything will be blue skies and, and, and green meadows. <laughs> uh, but then I realized that if I give people the, an app to find out what, what they need to change about their medication regimen, and they still have to wait six months to see a neurologist the next time to, to, to get the, the prescription they need to change that regimen. That might actually be worse than not knowing at all. So I realized that an app of that kind probably makes best, the best effect by being tailored to being used in the healthcare encounter between mm. the patient and the doctor. And not for tracking 24-7-365. So I and, and now you're talking about big data. I, I, I'm, I'm increasingly skeptical that the big that big data of the kind that we talk about today uh, will will solve things for people living with chronic conditions without their own involvement. I think that sure because I've I've also noticed that the more and more research in all across diseases, across diagnoses, uh, point towards the fact that what healthcare and healthcare professionals thinks are important for patients is very rarely the same as patients say if you ask them themselves. Which means that if you let healthcare do what they think is best for us, they will do the, right, the, the wrong thing. Well, you know, in my view of this, it has to be collaborative, right? It has to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm raising my hand. I want to work with you. I mean, I, I think the, the, these are things that we have to – look, we have to figure out how to leverage the data. In, in, in part, it's because – the experience of every person should help the next person, and and some. Yeah. But, but I think you're making a really good point, which it can't be extraneous to the patients. It can't be around the patients. It can't be without the patients. It needs to be a, a, an effort that takes into account the perspective and wisdom that exists within the patient community, in concert with people who have the skills to to help understand the underlying mechanisms and the connections with the medications, and and the data scientists who can help glean insights. But it also should never tell you what to do. It, it can only make suggestions about possible approaches. So one of the interesting things in the U.S. is that we often think that if we can, as you know, we have a lot of issues in our healthcare system, and the Swedish healthcare system is a, is a great example of a national healthcare system that we perceive as fu- functioning quite well. But, but we think it, as we move to what we call alternative payment models, that we move away from fee-for-service to population health, that, that that this will naturally occur. But in Sweden, you already have that. And you're suggesting to me that still the self-care doesn't dominate the, the you know, the, the empowerment of the patient, the ability to help people, you know, participate actively in their own care doesn't, it isn't normative. Is that right? That is correct. And and I would say it's it's much more to do with culture of, of the culture of healthcare than, than what, what healthcare system, what payment system you yeah. have. Yeah. And the paternalistic uh, sort of healthcare culture is still very much alive, even though there are pockets of, of, of efforts trying to do differently. But th- since they're not supported on a policy level or on a systems level, it doesn't really stick. So, so, what, do, so what are we going to do? I'm going to ask you here t- as we get to the end uh, for listeners, it's, what, what should we do to help accelerate that change? We need to start measuring uh, 
calculating the benefit of the the, the time spent in etc etc of, of self care patient self care as in supporting their own conditions needs to be acknowledged and more openly discussed as as a value created in healthcare and by saying and both healthcare healthcare professionals and patients need to be supported to 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 go to self care first yeah it's, the system needs to to be be targeted towards nudging people to self care well but but, then, it, but also the system needs need. the system needs to help people develop those skills i mean that to me that's the key thing not just hand waving medical education. I mean, health education, but but actually skill building, right? That that's yes, and that's where it, I go it, back it to diabetes. Be, go ahead. Sorry. It needs to be. It needs to be a community effort, definitely, and and, and that's 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 something we need. But we also need health economic evaluations that include self care. Yeah, I saw a recent article from a friend of mine in Spain, uh, Maite Vedan, who did a survey of patients with heart failure and around these skills for self-care. And it was striking, you know, how in, in essence, if you would say like equated to health literacy, I mean, their, their literacy, their, their knowledge and capability around the safe care in general for the patient population, which was a typical geriatric you know, population patients with heart failure was so low. And, and what I took that was not as the problem of the patients, but that the system is not, not helping them and their caregivers to gain the skills yeah, that they need. and th- there's an effort in Scotland called Realistic Medicine that I recently heard about that I really, really love. Yeah, tell it's me. It's about, yeah, they, they found that, or, or this is pretty much general knowledge, that pe- people in families of healthcare professionals, doctors, nurses, etc., they they seek medical care to, uh, to less often and they, they, they have more realistic expectations of what healthcare can do for them. Mm. And, and that's, of course, an effect of, of them being trained and ha- working in the system that they know the, the limitations of the system. Mm. Well, that's terrific. I'll, I'll definitely take a look. Let, let me ask you finally, as we get to the end, about for individuals. So we're talking about this cultural shift for, for the system, but what, what's your advice to individuals who say, you know, how do I, how do I start? Or or it's just not natural for me, or it feels uncomfortable for me because it feels like I'm challenging, you know, the status quo, the experts, when I start saying I want to bring in some things that I'm doing. So, yes, I know that. I've been there myself. And the first time I I, I was, I, I had the thought that, hmm, maybe my doctor, maybe my neurologist doesn't always know everything about, about Parkinson's. That's a very scary thought because who who can then help me with my with my issues? So the first that's a really really scary thought. That really sort of it's like looking it's standing at the at the edge of an abyss. But once you you take the leap across, and I've never heard and this is something I've heard so many e patients and and lead patients as I call them uh, describe the similar things. I've never heard of anyone who hasn't made it across. Once you're across on the other side, you can you can you know that you can work together with healthcare, and, and that everybody ha- all, all all parties have their own uh, con- things to contribute to, to the to the overall result. And once you've you've dared to sort of be secure in that thought for yourself, it, it's it's re- it's like a, a new world opening. <laughs> and uh, and of course, it's a really scary thought to do because you can't. There's not there's no one there to support you to take that leap. Right. Uh, and I know that it's scary because I've been there myself. 
I love the way you phrase it. Once you dare to do it, you can't look back, right? Once you dare to get across. You, you, yeah, you can't. Um, you can't. It's like the curse of knowledge. You don't. You don't really remember what it's like not to know this. Uh huh. And it's an attitude, not just knowledge, but it's it's an approach, right? It's a. It's a. Yeah. Yeah. But but a consequence of this is that you that I always have I I've also developed something I call a doctor centered approach. What's that? Well, people talk about patient centered yeah. healthcare, right? right? I'm a doctor centered patient, centered patient. <laughs> and that means that I, I when I when I come across a, a new a, a doctor or nurse that I haven't met before, I'm very very careful as to what I say and how how engaged I, I show them that I am, because I know that the worst thing that can happen to a patient be is being seen as a, as a troublesome patient, as a difficult patient, hmm. and and that's something you can't sort of Undo. You, you don't want to scare them off. <laughs> no. Uh, so I, I, I sort of lay it on them bit by bit to, to see <laughs> how much they can take. And that's something I call be, being doctor something. That's funny. Yeah, it's funny, but it's sad. Yeah, well, I, I th- my hope is also as the culture shifts, it, like I said, it becomes normative that, and it becomes odd to be otherwise. Like people should embrace and celebrate that that's really – what, what you do and who you are and, and how it's worked yeah. for you in the past. I mean, the truth is in, in, in the performance. I mean, how it's, how it's worked. And uh, definitely. So it's and, not and, just and claim. I, I, and I see that this is shifting slowly, but steadily. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic. Well, let, let me just, uh, we can end on that note. And I think it's a, it's an optimistic, optimistic note that people can, can make that leap and, and uh, yeah, we are making but, some progress. But it's difficult because you, you, both patients and healthcare professionals need to change their view of the patient role, and it's it's hard. Look, we've inherited a certain mindset, and we have a certain set of blinders on. and And I, I believe on the doctor side, you, the socialization process is intense. I mean, you're, you're definitely, definitely. I, I know, and I, I know, and acknowledge all of that. And well, I, that's what we have to change, right? We have to change the socialization from the beginning to a different kind of. Approach. We need to change. We need to change it back. I think we need a different kind of socialization. Yeah, yeah. But it will take time. But we we are more. I, I I'm hopeful to see more and more people joining in this in this in this uh, network in this in this movement. Really, you know. I, I so I want to thank you so much for joining us. I actually yeah, cannot think you. of anyone who better exemplifies the idea of never delegate understanding than you. And uh, it, it's it's my great honor to have you on, and and uh, and like I said, we'll find ways to do things together. But I hope this has been good for the listeners too, to sort of be inspired by by what you've done, and, and as we continue to move healthcare in a different direction. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm I'm, I'm delighted to have been a part of this. Thank you so much, sir. Never delegate understanding is hosted by me, Harlan Krumholtz. Produced by Cesar Carballo and Daisy Massey and edited by Ryan McAvoy at the Yale Broadcast Studio. Follow us on Twitter at at NDU underscore podcast or email us at neverdelegateunderstanding at gmail.com. Listen for free at Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast. We'll have new episodes in two weeks.